Well, today we begin a, a new series which will be interrupted next Sunday. <laughs> because I want to bring a special Father's Day message next Sunday titled, Our Father Who Art on Earth. But, other than that, we are beginning a new series titled, Great Questions in the New Testament. It's easy for these questions to kind of slip by us when reading the Bible, so we're going to stop and take special note of the great questions in the New Testament. We're beginning today with the question in the book of Hebrews, chapter 2. Actually, there are three unanswered questions in the New Testament. One of them is Mark 8, 36, where Jesus said, What shall it profit a man if he gain the whole world but lose his own soul? Now, he doesn't answer that. He just hangs that out there for you to consider. What shall it profit a man? You have to give the answer. The second one is in 1 Peter 4, verse 17, where Peter says, For the time is come that judgment must begin at the house of God. And if it first begin at us, here's the question, what shall the end be of them that obey not the gospel of God? The question does not have an answer in that passage. You have to give the answer. And the third one is the one that we are looking at today in Hebrews 2, verse 3. How shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? No answer is given in Hebrews. You have to answer it. You have to bring in the next line. So, the first question in this series is, how shall we escape? if we neglect so great salvation. Undoubtedly, this is one of the most searching and solemn questions in history. It is broken out into three sections. Notice the sections with me. First, a great provision, salvation. That's a marvelous thing, salvation. And we're going to talk about that in our first point today. A great provision for us all. Secondly, a great peril that faces each of us. The peril of neglect. The great possibility in any life, the possibility of neglect. After a great provision is this great peril. And thirdly, a great problem. If we neglect, how shall we escape? That is how the verse breaks out, how the question comes down. Follow me through each of these three points. First, the great provision, salvation. What does salvation mean? Have you ever sat down to evaluate it, maybe even to write it down? Salvation means, I have a feeling that if some were to do that, they would say, 
Salvation means I'm going to go to heaven when I die. And there is truth in that, but that's not really the meaning of salvation. I have a feeling that some might say, salvation means that I'm going to go to church regularly now. Or I'm going to be religious now. Or I'm going to say my prayers regularly from here on. Well, friends, salvation is not religion. Salvation is not our doing something. Salvation is what He has done already for us. It is a revelation from God Himself to the human heart. That's what salvation is. And I have a feeling that a lot of folk who think they have salvation really don't because they have not had that revelation of God Himself in their life. Now, the illustration of this is in Luke, the 15th chapter. It's one of my favorite chapters in the Bible because Jesus really gets to telling stories in Luke 15. And we all love stories. He tells the story of the lost sheep. He tells the story of the lost coin. And he tells the story of the lost son. We call him the prodigal. When the sheep was lost, it was away from the shepherd, unhappy, wandering outside the fold, and of course in great danger, in peril. Then the shepherd sought and found the sheep. What did the sheep do? Nothing. It was in peril. It was lost. The point of the story is that the shepherd took the initiative. The shepherd found the sheep and brought it back into the fold. That's salvation. It's the revelation of God himself to the human heart. It's what God does for us, not what we do for God. That's what's in this great story. I can see the shepherd placing that sheep on his shoulder, and carrying it happy and safely back to where it belonged. That's what salvation is. A picture of the shepherd picking up the wanderer, putting it on his shoulder, and carrying it happy and safely back where that sheep needed to be all of the time, safely in the fold. Salvation provides for the complete restoration of the sinner. What is the parable about in verse 8 and on down through verse 10? A woman, woman having ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp, sweep the house, and seek diligently until she finds it. And when she has found it, she calls her friends and neighbors together, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the peace which I lost. See, there it is again. Where is the initiative? Not in the coin. The coin lays there as an inanimate object. But the woman who has lost the coin 
seeks it with lamplight until she finds it. And when she finds it, she rejoices in the neighborhood because she found that which was lost. That's salvation. That's what it means. God seeks us. God finds us through Jesus Christ. And all heaven rejoices at the discovery. And then, of course, the great story of the prodigal We focus on the son who dissipated himself and went far away, but the focus ought to be on the father who went out looking down the road daily for the son to return, always feeling that he would come back. Have you ever pictured God that way, as feeling like you would come back, like you would come home, like you would repent and seek his favor? God's looking for us all the time. The story ends by that father extending his arms to that wayward boy who was thin and emaciated, his clothing torn, smelling like the pigs of the pig pen when he had left the riches of his home. There is the father extending his arms to that emaciated boy who had squandered a portion of his life and all of his inheritance. But the father is so thrilled that he's home that he says, He who is lost is found. He who is dead is alive. Let us rejoice. Kill the fatted calf. Put the ring on his finger. Put a robe on his shoulders. My son is alive. Who initiated that? It was the father that was looking all the time for the son to come home. That's salvation. The writer of Hebrews uses two qualifying words. When he speaks of salvation, I want you to note them. He says, first of all, in this passage of Scripture, how shall we escape if we neglect this great salvation? And then he adds another little word to amplify. So great! Now, great is great, but when you say, so great, You've really got the epic. So great. What was he trying to say? I think he was trying to express in some way what he felt about the grace of God that sought him and that found him when he didn't deserve it. Think of the love that provided it. Many songwriters have tried to express it. Oh, love of God. How rich and free, how measureless and strong it shall forevermore endure the saints and angels' song if we with ink the ocean fill and would the scribe contain the whole. If he could take all that water and turn it to ink, he still couldn't write sufficiently of the love of God expressed in Christ. So great a salvation. Oh, the love that drew salvation's plan. Oh, the grace that brought it down to man. Why did it come down to man? Because man was so needy and God wanted to help him. So at Bethlehem, that love came down to where we were. At Calvary, that love came down to where we were. At the empty tomb, that love came down to where we were in time and in the person of Jesus Christ. 
God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son so great a salvation. Great in love. Great in the price paid for salvation. How do you express it? Maybe you can in 1 John 4, 9. In this was manifested the love of God toward us because God sent his only begotten son into the world that we might live through him. God in creation spoke a word and the worlds were framed. At redemption, however, it cost him the word. John 1, 1, he became flesh. He dwelt among us. That was the price. His own life. The giving of his own flesh and his own blood until the scripture thunders forth these words, we are redeemed with corrupt, we are not redeemed with corruptible things as silver and gold, but with the precious blood of Jesus as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. Not with corruptible things, but with the blood of a lamb. Oh, the price of it. Have you seen him hanging there for you? Have you seen him dying there for you? Have you seen those people punishing him for you? That's the price. He did it for you. And then, of course, it was great because of the blessings included in it. He hath blessed us with all spiritual blessings in Christ. Ephesians 1, 3. Well, why don't you just start naming some of those? How about forgiveness? How about cleansing? How about eternal life? How about joy? How about peace? How about grace? How about heaven as our eternal home? What blessings in Christ? Added to that, the family of God that we're a part of. All the blessings. What kind of salvation is it? So great a salvation. Why would anyone reject it? Why would anyone turn their back on this gift-wrapped package from heaven? Why would anyone say, I'm going to try it my own way instead of taking his way? Why would we be so foolish to reject so great a salvation? Well, the reason is explained in the Bible. Why we do that, it's because we don't want to become like children. We don't want to be humble. We don't want to accept the simplicity of the message. But it's so great a salvation in its simplicity and in its power. I remember reading some of the life of Dr. Norman Vincent Peale, who started his ministry in the state of Ohio, which is where I happened to start mine. When he was in seminary, he was asked by a bishop to preach in a country church and he was excited about it, and he worked all week on his message. And his father, who was a minister also, called him in and said, Son, tell me what you're going to preach about. And he laid it all out for his father, and his father said, Well, that's, that's good, son, but the only problem is I, I don't understand it. That's kind of devastating when you've worked all week. 
He said, let me tell you about the folk where you're going to preach. He said, they're simple country folk, yet they're intelligent. And what they need to hear is just the simplicity of the gospel. You go out there, throw your sermon notes in the incinerator, and you go and tell them how Jesus is real to you. So Norman Peale did that. He destroyed his notes and went out there, watched them drive in to the country church, came in looking the best they could, and he thought, boy, I'm sure not very prepared for this. But he got up and he spoke his heart and he told what Jesus meant to him. Afternoon found him in one of those country homes for a country dinner. Have you ever had one of those Sunday country dinners? They just don't exist anymore. But those were really something. And after dinner, the man of the house called Mr. Peel out into the yard and he put his great big hand in his and shook it and he said, Sir, I want you to know your message this morning touched me. He said, first of all, it was simple. And second of all, it told of Jesus Christ. And with that, he turned around, having been choked by now and tears coming into his eyes, and walked away. And somebody came to Norman Peel and said, you'll have to forgive him because he was really a wanderer. He was a mean man. He was away from God until a revival came to our little country church, and he attended. And Jesus Christ came into his heart and literally changed him. And ever since then, when he starts to talk about his salvation, he breaks all up. He gets all emotional. Just forgive him. That's just the way he is. But it taught Norman Peel a message he never, never forgot. He said it was simple and it was about Jesus Christ. I say to you that's the essence of this great salvation. It's simple and it's all about Jesus Christ. It has nothing to do with me. I was weak and undone, but he came to redeem me. How beautiful it is, yet you can miss it by your own pride and your own arrogance. Forgetting the blessing of its love, the great price that was paid for it, and the blessings that are included in it. Secondly, in this text is the great peril. The peril of neglecting this salvation. There are three things you can do when you hear the gospel. I'm aware every time I preach that these things are possible in response. The first is rejecting it. That's the possibility. God doesn't demand it of us. He offers it to us. But he gives us the opportunity to make a decision. Unfortunately, some make a decision to reject. And it's like saying... I refuse. I would rather just let it go. I would rather just forgive it for now and walk away. That's hard to believe, but that's what some would say. It's sort of the picture of Jesus looking over Jerusalem, weeping and saying, I would have gathered you, but you would not. You see, he wanted to 
save all of Jerusalem. He wanted all of Jerusalem to believe, all of Jerusalem to receive his blessing, but they would not. That's the point of his statement. I would have gathered you, but you would not. So when we stand before him someday, what can we do? Do we dare think of pointing our finger at him and say, you didn't give me a chance? No, he will say, I would have gathered you, but you would not. You've heard the gospel how many times? How many times over has the message come to you? You see, you have the right to reject it. That's possible. That's what's involved in this word neglect. The great peril is to neglect the opportunity and say, I would rather not. I'll take my chances. That's your right. But it's perilous. The second possibility of reaction is to accept it. To hear it, to believe it, to receive it, to take the gift. That, of course, is the right action. To hear it and to believe it. To accept it as God's free gift, God's free offer to you as a human being. That you were lost and undone without God or His Son. But He came in love and appealed to your heart. And you accepted His love and His forgiveness. Maybe not even fully understanding it. I don't know that we all ever understand it. But it's there nonetheless for us to accept. And we rejoice in the peace and the joy that comes as a result of our choice. The third possibility is to neglect. Reject, accept, and neglect. A careless, passive attitude. You see, this is the one that frightens me about people who come every week, who attend services, who go through the motions, but they really do nothing about their spiritual condition. How shall we escape if we neglect? If we just go through the motions of singing, the motions of worship, but it never impacts our life. We still cheat. We still lie. We still cuss. We still beat up on our wife. We mistreat people in the business. We're unkind to people in the world. You see, that's neglecting the salvation. And there's great peril in neglecting because it's supposed to make us different. You can't go on chewing your cud. You can't go on cussing and taking the name of the Lord in vain. You don't treat your employers, employees, like you used to treat them. You don't treat the neighbors like you used to treat them. Throwing your weeds over in their yard. You've been changed by the power of God. I just get so sick and tired of this thing of Christianity not changing anybody, not impacting anybody. They go on in their same old rut. You can't tell me you can walk like that into the presence of God and say, here I am, you lucky God. Jesus didn't die to keep us in the same old ruts that we've been in. He died to impact our lives and to make us different and to touch our world. You don't walk away from your companion like some have done in recent days in this church 
can say, I'm a Christian anyway, I just can't live with this person. Christ doesn't do things like that. And if Christianity means Christ living in me, then I better live like He would live. You can neglect this salvation to your absolute peril and damnation, even though you hear it week after week and sit in these seats week after week, but it doesn't impact your life. I ask you, does it impact your life? Is it making you a better person? Are you closer to Jesus today than you were last week? You know Him better than you did when you first heard of His name. Don't neglect possible to be so absorbed with making money, building a home or a business, taking time for our hobby, whether it be sports or whether it be making something with your hands or fishing or whatever it be. The great peril is to be absorbed with that and neglect your soul. In any realm of life, it's dangerous to neglect. If you neglect your home, let the weeds grow up, the doors just hang from their hinges, never painted. If you neglect your body, don't sleep right, don't eat right. If you neglect your children, you don't train them, you don't discipline them, you don't teach them. If you don't take care of your car, you don't change the oil, you don't pay any attention to those things that are listed in the book when you're supposed to take care of them, you know what will happen. Why then do we think it's any different with our soul? If you neglect your soul, the same thing happens. You can't expect anything else to happen. It goes into disrepair. The neglect of some things brings only temporary consequences, but when you neglect your soul... It brings eternal consequences. Are you hearing my heart? The great peril of neglect. The third part of the question is the great problem. How will you escape? Could I just ask it again? How will you escape? Have you ever done business with that? How will you escape? That's the big problem. How am I going to escape? How am I going to get away from this thing? How are you going to escape his wrath? Read Revelation sometime. Tell me how you're going to escape his wrath. They cried for the rocks and the mountains to fall on them, to hide them from the wrath of him who sat on the throne. How are you going to get away from that? That's what this question is about. How are we going to escape? There is none. There is no escape. There's no way out. It's like being chased by thugs and running down an alley only to find it's a dead end. There's no way out other than back that way. And the thugs are in front of you. What do you do? There's only one way to travel to heaven. And if a man rejects that way, how can he get there? Impossible. I wish I could tell every American that today. 
There's only one way to heaven, and if you neglect that way, if you ignore that way, there is no other way into heaven. How will you escape? You think there's some magic in your name? Do you think there's some magic in your position in this world? Do you think there's some magic in your physique or your background? There is no magic in that. Every man must give an account of himself to God. How shall we escape? That's the great problem. I read of two men, and you've read of similar situations, who were standing at the end of a pier. Suddenly a third man rushed past them and plunged into the water, and the two men had a rope there coiled up, and they grabbed that rope and threw it to the man in the water, and it fell right across him in the water. All he had to do was reach out and take hold of it, and they cried to him, Take hold of the rope, and we'll pull you in. And he said, that's very kind of you, as he went under, never to come back up. Refusing to take hold of the rope, it was his, in, it was his intent to die like that. Even though there was a rope, and there were two men on the other end that could have pulled him in and saved him, he chose to go down, and he chose to perish. Now, friend, whether you're doing that consciously or unconsciously, if you don't take hold of the rope, you're perishing and there's no other escape. There's no other route. It's like getting into a hotel now and you look there on the hall. There's these little diagrams with the little red mark that says you are here and here is the way out. And it will draw a diagram for you caused by the fires in Las Vegas hotels particularly. So that when you go into your room, you know if there's some problem, this is the way you must go. And you better study it in case there's something that happens, because that's the only way. If you don't go that way, there isn't any other way. You'll perish. That's the great problem. God is very kind to us. But if we neglect, he has no alternative but to ask the question, how shall we escape? That's the first great question in the New Testament that I want to bring to your attention. And the thing that we face as we come to this, this question and the thing we will face when we come to some of the others is the apathy of hearts. Or people thinking they're good enough you see, the sinner can reject and the professing Christian can neglect, so in some way we're all in peril, depending on how we respond to God's invitations of opportunity. Maybe I could refine my thinking in one little question to you in the final moments of our service together. What are your desires like? What are your desires for the things of God? How strong are they? How deep are they? How meaningful are they? Where does God rate in your list of priorities? That's what this question has to do with. Where does God rate 
in our life? How are your desires toward God? Don't make excuses. Don't say, well, if Jim and Tammy Baker had done it differently, it would be a lot easier for me. No way. If it wasn't them, it would be somebody else. Don't say if my family member would live the life more fully and completely, it'd be a lot easier. No, it wouldn't. You have to decide. Nobody can live your life for you. Nobody can make your decisions for you. You have to do it yourself. What are your desires like toward God? Stop blaming other people. Stop blaming the church. Stop blaming God. Stop blaming your environment. Accept the responsibility yourself and ask the question, how will I escape if I neglect so great salvation? If we'll all face up to that, this church is going to get immediately stronger immediately more powerful, immediately more effective, if every one of us will assume the responsibility of no longer neglecting this great salvation which has been offered us through Jesus Christ our Lord. Our salvation which is offered us in Jesus Christ is great enough, powerful enough for every need represented in this building today. But we've got to embrace the answer. We've got to take hold of the lifeline. Will you do it? A cluster of small boys, obviously without the price of admission to the football stadium, stood out there by the gate, longingly looking through the fence, when a gentleman in the crowd stepped forward to the gatekeeper and he said, let these kids in and count them as they go through and tell me how many go in. So the gatekeeper let them through and he counted them and when they had all passed, the ticket taker said to the observer, 34! The man nodded, right you are, and disappeared in the crowd outside the gate. I laughed too until a great thought hit me. It was like Jesus standing there. There's the ticket taker and I don't have the price. And I want to go in so bad. The streets are paved with gold. Why the gates are made of pearls. One pearl makes up one gate. Can you imagine? And I want to go in so bad. <laughs> There's a man in a seamless robe and sandal feet. And he says, count how many go in. You see, he has the key. He has the authority to let us in. But how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? My concern this morning is for the sinner and the saint. My concern is for those outside the church as well as those inside the church because I've lived long enough and I've been in this work long enough to know that not only can sinners neglect so great a salvation, but Christians so-called can neglect their salvation and they're just riding along on somebody else's experience. They don't really have a viable, up-to-date, life-giving flow of Christ within 
And it's to that group as well that this question comes today. How will you escape if you neglect your salvation? If you keep blaming your weaknesses on somebody else or on something that's come into your life, you're not holding on to Jesus. If you're blaming it on to something or somebody, you've got to take him fully. Walk with him by faith. Be involved in building his kingdom on earth. Be a witness for him in the world. Live your life as he would have it lived before men. Then you will hear him say one day, come on in, price is already paid. I have a feeling when we walk through those gates, the heavenly chorus will be singing, Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain, but he washed it. Why the snow? Oh, such a great salvation. What are you doing with it today, friend? Let's bow our heads in prayer. Lord Jesus, we are humbled to be here today in your presence, drinking at your fountain, feasting at your table. I thank you, God, for every person that has found their way into the church today and every person that has been listening to us by radio. I pray now that your Holy Spirit will take the Word and cause it to bring life, cause it to bring liberty and freedom to human hearts for the person who has been neglecting their salvation to the point they have just put Jesus in the background. They have not accepted salvation by faith. May they today embrace the cross and receive the grace and the mercy that is there. And then for those who have professed Christianity, but they're really not much different than what they used to be. They're not active in the church. They're not giving the Lord what's rightfully His. Their life is not a testimony to Christ in the world. Oh, Jesus, touch them too in a powerful way that together we may reach our world. We may touch people because we have been touched. We have been drawn now by the blood of Christ. Yeah.